ask me all the time what they should feed their newborn. New parents want their babies to have the very best nutrition, whether they're breastfed, formula fed, or they're giving a mixture of both. But when most people think about what to feed their baby, they're thinking about things like the type of sugar in the formula and what will be gentle on the tummy. And they don't realize that these aren't the only considerations because there is a component of human milk that they don't even know to ask about. There's something very important about the milk we feed our babies that most people don't know. It is possibly the most important component of milk and it wasn't even in infant formula until 2016. They are molecules called oligosaccharides. Human milk oligosaccharides, which are called HMOs for short, are complex sugar molecules that are only produced in the mammary gland of animals. There is still a lot of mystery surrounding these molecules. So of course, there are researchers who specialize in them. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Lars Bode from the Human Milk Institute at UC San Diego. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. The most important ingredient in breast milk is one that you may not have ever heard of. Or maybe if you've looked at a can of infant formula recently, you may have noticed that the label says it contains HMOs. We know that these oligosaccharide molecules develop the immune system, they protect against infection, and they actually help develop the brain. Dr. Lars Boda has been studying these molecules for more than 25 years. I'm excited to share his research with you. It's truly a remarkable story, and here it is. When you first started studying human milk, how was it thought of and what has changed in our understanding since then? For me, it was absolutely fascinating to look at components in human milk, how different they are to what is an infant formula. But really what struck me the most is the group next door was working on these human milk oligosaccharides. And they are not an infant formula at all. So it's like this unique group of molecules that are only in human milk. So they're only made in humans only made in women, only made in the lactating mammary glands, and only during lactation. So it's a very strict window of time and opportunity when these molecules are made. And we didn't know anything about them. We didn't know really how they're synthesized, how mom is making them. It's a biochemistry textbook that is blank. And we certainly didn't know what these oligosaccharides do to to infant health. Like, why is mom making them? What's the benefit? And that absolutely uh, hit me and made a career out of it. That's so crazy. It's sort of like in the middle of the ocean when we discover a new sea creature that's completely different than anything we've ever seen. Like, what is this? Where does it come from? What can we learn from it? What else is in human milk? What are the components of human milk? So human milk contains your, if you look at a food label in the supermarket, contains your proteins and your lipids and your carbohydrates. So so you can you can calculate an energy or calorie value out of that. And then there is vitamins and minerals, just like the food that you have that you see in the supermarket, right? But then in addition to that, it's not just nutrition. There's many other bioactive molecules in human milk. In fact, there's entire cells in human milk. So mom's cells, both immune cells and epithelial cells from the mammary gland, make it into milk. And they might have an effect on on the infant is work that shows that there's progenitors or stem cell-like cells in human milk that might then implant in the infant, actually. And then uh, bacteria in human milk. We know that human milk is not sterile. There are 
bacteria and human milk, and they might then contribute to building microbial communities in the infant. And then there's antibodies that protect the infant potentially from certain diseases. And that is mom-specific in the sense that depending on what mom senses in her environment and what kind of bacteria and viruses she is exposed to, she then makes and mounts an antibody response. And those antibodies are then handed off through milk to the baby, so the baby is protected as well. So, so it's really a, a multitude of different components, not just molecules, but really living cells and living bacteria. When babies drink immunoglobulins, do they digest them or do they actually use them for immunity? So it's a very good question. And that really came up also during the COVID pandemic, right? When we saw that mom is infected, makes antibodies, or mom receives the vaccine, makes antibodies. We found those antibodies in human milk. And some of them have some form of protection on them. So it's like called the secretory IgA. And that particular component uh, apparently blocks them from digestion in the infant's gastrointestinal tract, so in the stomach and in the intestine. And apparently then could contribute to uh, protection from certain viruses or bacteria. There are bacteria in human milk and they create what you said is a biome. What, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. so, so the microbiome or microbiota is the complexity of microbes that live in a certain environment. So in a certain niche, uh, in the intestine or on your skin or in your nose or, you know, every niche in your body has its own composition of microbes. And that composition we call the microbiota. And if you look at the genes of those microbes, uh, that's called the microbiome. So, so it's really a community of different bacteria that live together, either in harmony or not so much, in a given niche, uh, usually in the intestine. So you talked about the components of milk, and I know parents always ask me, or they're worried if their baby is responding poorly to their milk or just being a regular baby. They think it's the milk, and they're worried about something they're eating going into the milk and affecting them. Does it matter what a mother eats in terms of the composition? Yeah, to a certain extent. So flavors, for example, we know go into milk. And, then, and there's also a few components. If you, if you think of eating broccoli, for example, or other things that give you an upset stomach, baby could potentially get those molecules as well and then make it a little bit more fuzzy. Oh, darn, you were not supposed to say that. So that's possible. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. But very often it's not. Uh, I mean, human milk is developed as a very robust system and if whatever happens to mom in a bad way is translated to human milk as well, nature would, have, would take care of that already. Right? You want to protect the infant as much as possible. And whether there's flavors going through, okay, but the baby has to get adjusted to food flavors that are in that cultural environment. So that's maybe a good thing. And then there's a few other things that, uh, like the broccoli story, that, that might not be that uh, favorable. Right. So the flavor of breast milk can change based on what mom's eating. And then does the HMO composition change? It does change. It's mostly genetically determined. Oh. So it's fairly robust. It changes over the course of lactation. We know that. The composition at the very early time points in colostrum and then let's say in the first two, three, four weeks is very different than what we have at a year or two years out or six months even. And we see this in, in cohorts around the world. When we study human milk, we always see in longitudinal samples, so multiple samples that we collect from the same person over time, that the oligosaccharide composition changes in a very similar way. So independent of where you are on the planet, your oligosaccharide composition changes in a way that some oligosaccharides or most oligosaccharides decrease in concentration 
and others go up. And then that means that the relative composition changes quite a bit, actually. And we have no clue why that is. HMOs change composition during different times in the infant's life. So there are different HMOs in colostrum. That's the first milk that moms produce. Then when a baby is three months old or 10 months old, the HMO composition changes. But the components of formula, they stay the same the whole time. And we don't know what effect this has. Still, there's a lot that is known. What do we know about human milk oligosaccharides? We have about 150 to 200 different oligosaccharides in human milk, so different structures that have been identified. And in totality, these oligosaccharides are the third most abundant component of human milk. So lactose is your most, most abundant, then comes the lipids, so your fats, and then comes oligosaccharides. And oligosaccharide concentrations are often higher than total protein. So the whole idea is now to understand why do different women make different oligosaccharides? The composition is very different. And what do these oligosaccharides do for infant health? Why is mom investing so much energy during lactation, actually during pregnancy already, to make these very complex molecules in a time when resources are fairly limited? Evolutionally speaking, uh, that's the time where you want to conserve energy as much as possible. And uh, still, mom makes these complex molecules, so they must have some benefit to, to either herself or to the baby. And that's what we're trying to figure out. You just asked the question that I wanted to ask is, what do the babies do with it? Do they digest them? Do they use them for energy or do they serve some other purpose? Yeah, that's the most interesting part. They do not digest them. So baby directly cannot use them to make energy out of them. Uh, Unlike lactose, which lactose in the small intestine gets broken down in glucose and galactose and is one of your major energy sources, right? Lipids, the same thing. Oligosaccharides are not degraded by the host, by the baby. They make it all the way into the large intestine And uh, that's where bacteria now that live in the intestine are able to utilize them. Some bacteria can utilize them, others can't. So the bacteria that can utilize them now have an advantage because they get food kind of uh, in the large intestine all the time. And the other bacteria is like, hey, wait a second, I can't use this. Uh, Why is this guy now getting an advantage here? And we think that that has some effects on priming what kind of bacteria live in the large intestine in the babies. And that might have long-lasting consequences. So we call that the prebiotic effects of oligosaccharides, similar to the prebiotics that you find in the store when you go and buy a prebiotic supplement or or food. Those are usually carbohydrates, sugars, that supports the growth of certain bacteria, whereas other bacteria cannot utilize them and have a disadvantage. So you're trying to manipulate the composition of bacteria in the gut uh, with potential health benefits. So human milk has hundreds of these oligosaccharides, these sugars that feed our gut microbiome. Do animals have them too? Yeah, so, so some, most mammals make some form of oligosaccharides. In fact, you find it already in platypus. They're literally the best animal. That's right. Uh, the yeah. best to study when it comes to lactation because they're the first animal really that starts lactating, but at the same time still has eggs. Right? So it's this hybrid form of, of somewhat of a mammal, but not really yet. And you find oligosaccharides in platypus milk and lactose you don't find. So the idea is there that, wow. that these oligosaccharides were originally designed to serve as antimicrobials. So uh, we know that platypus, you know, it's like almost like a sweat gland, the mammary gland. And these oligosaccharides were needed to fend off bacteria and, and other pathogens that would then be in between the babies trying to suck on that liquid that comes out in a fairly unclean environment, let's say. We're thinking that these oligosaccharides are more antimicrobials, 
uh, instead of what we just talked about being prebiotics that that foster the community by being used by certain positive bacteria. Uh, we also have evidence that they actually stop the growth of certain bacteria by serving as antimicrobials. So it's really this battle that goes on in the intestine, right? where you have the good bacteria, the bad bacteria, then oligosaccharides either feed the good bacteria, but they also keep the bad bacteria in check by directly stopping their growth. baby is born, they're not exposed to viruses and bacteria because amniotic fluid is sterile. Then a baby's born into a world full of bacteria and fungi and viruses. And just like babies are born with a reflex that helps them to feed the second they're born, there has to be something that helps protect them from getting sick. We know they have antibodies that they get from mom, but we think oligosaccharides might be the key to the rest of the story. These sugars are at least protecting the baby in their new not-so-sterile environment, and there are other functions of these HMOs that have been discovered that have even surprised researchers like Dr. Bode. Here's more of that story. We've really taken this to the next level in the sense that we're trying to understand what these oligosaccharides do in the maternal infant space, so really whether we're designed to function, right? So baby gets exposed to these oligosaccharides by drinking human milk. Mom is also exposed to these oligosaccharides. She's not only making them to secrete them with milk, but we can measure these oligosaccharides in her own circulation as well. So there is oligosaccharides not only going forward out into the milk, but they're going backwards into her bloodstream as well. In fact, we find them as early as the end of the first trimester. So the question is, what are they doing there? You know, end of the first trimester, no way would there be ever a baby that survives that early, even if it's the most preterm baby that there would be a need for this milk with these oligosaccharides. Maybe the effect there in that early stages is more on mom, that mom actually benefits from having these oligosaccharides now in her bloodstream. Maybe that keeps pregnancy uh, up. Uh, it could also be, and we found these oligosaccharides in amniotic fluid, so it could be that the baby is already exposed, not the baby, but the growing fetus is exposed to these oligosaccharides in utero uh, during pregnancy. And then the other dimension there is that by learning more and more mechanistically what these oligosaccharides do, really on a molecular and cellular level, we can then extrapolate that and see, well, these particular mechanisms play a role in inflammatory bowel disease or in arthritis or in cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke. And is it possible that if we identify individual molecules, oligosaccharides, that have these benefits, can we use them then synthetically to treat or prevent diseases like a heart attack? Can we potentially give these oligosaccharides to an adult that suffers from arthritis and all of a sudden the joint pain gets better? We've shown this in animal models that that actually works. And, and again, I'm not uh, saying that adults should now go online and find human milk somewhere. Please don't. A, for safety reasons, and B, because the infants should drink human milk, not the adults. But we can make these oligosaccharides available synthetically now and maybe use them as templates for drugs for people of all ages. Of course, that has a huge benefit because... We already know these components are safe. They're made by humans for humans. Babies drink them every two to three hours, so they get exposed to it for months, if not years uh, at a time, right? So that means we could potentially develop new therapeutics that are fairly cheap and certainly safe without having to worry about any side effects of the 
the components that we usually feed as drugs uh, or use as drugs that are some weird chemicals that uh, no one really knows what they're doing. Uh, here we know what they're doing and we know that they're actually designed by evolution to help the baby and why not learn from that and use that as therapeutics for, for adults as well. There's data that shows that women who suffer from arthritis and then become pregnant and lactate, that they very often go in remission during pregnancy and then they flare up again at late stages of lactation when they start to wean off the baby. So we always think about, oh, there's some hormonal thing that's going on there in women, right, when they're pregnant and, and lactating. But it turns out the same component, the same oligosaccharide that we found in animal models to be protective against arthritis is also found in higher concentrations in the milk of women that go in remission and not so much in women that don't go in remission. So there's a clear association between making this molecule, having a benefit for yourself, so that moms actually uh, go in remission when they have uh, arthritis. I find that quite fascinating. I know you can buy human milk online, you can buy it, or you can bank it. And a lot of universities have human milk banks. What effects does storing human milk or pasteurizing it have on the HMOs? Yeah, actually, unfortunately, not that many universities are, do have a milk <laughs> bank. It's fairly rare still and underdeveloped, so there's lots of opportunities there. I wish more universities would, or more hospitals really would make uh, an effort to either have a milk bank or at least source human milk, at least for their very vulnerable preterm infants. So uh, if someone hears that that is uh, responsible for that, please consider human milk for preterm infants. There's clearly a life benefit for it. But what happens to human milk when you pasteurize it, right? So human milk and milk banks gets pasteurized. But pasteurizing means that you're inactivating all the bacteria in human milk, not just the pathogens, not just the bad guys, but everything. And we know that there is bacteria in human milk that are potentially beneficial. Uh, and we would get rid of all of them. Pasteurization is not ideal. And there are efforts currently to develop better technologies to maintain some of the quality of human milk. But that's currently the best thing we can do to find that balance between saving infants from certain pathogens that could come through human milk that we don't want, that could actually make the infants sicker. And at the same time, maintaining some of that activity that human milk has uh, through its bioactive molecules. Now, yes, you can buy human milk on the internet, so you can go on Craigslist or, or other platforms and buy human milk from people. But I would be very careful there that that human milk is often not tested. Uh, you don't really know where it's coming from. And there is a potential risk of getting infected with something like HIV or hepatitis or other uh, diseases. So I would highly recommend not doing that. Do you think that it benefits a baby to drink milk from a variety of mothers? I know that happens in some cultures. Well, it happens in our culture when you get donor milk. So donor milk very often is pooled human milk from multiple different donors, and then it gets pasteurized and bottled up and sent out to the hospitals. And the answer is we don't know. Uh, we don't know if there is something like an individualization, a personalized milk composition, that mom makes a certain milk composition that is only for that baby and best for that baby, or if that doesn't matter that much, if it's okay to, as long as you just get human milk with, with a variety or a mix on average of, of components, that you're fine. I would argue that in most of the cases, you're probably fine. And again, speaking from, from an evolutionary perspective and also from traditional cultures, there's a lot of milk sharing going on in traditional cultures where 
multiple family members uh, would help with feeding a baby because everyone's pregnant at the same time and you would hand off the babies. So, so I think that exists quite a bit in either traditional cultures or certainly in our culture when it comes to a donor milk bank that is often pooled. Does the surrounding environment that a mom is in make any difference in the composition of her milk? Uh, we've seen that there's milk composition differences um, in the dry season or wet season in, in, in Africa. Uh, in fact, we've seen this for oligosaccharides also in, in a Canadian cohort, where you would think that the dry or wet season or cold winter and warm summer doesn't make such a big difference on nutrition because your supermarket still holds many of the foods year-round. Right. But there is a difference still. So uh, why that exactly is and what drives that, we don't know. But you can see, certainly see that, yeah. So a lot of my patients breastfeed and then they also give store-bought probiotics. Okay, that seems silly to me. What do you think? Is it necessary? Uh, I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, you know, some of those probiotics are actually saying that they utilize, especially oligosaccharides from human milk. And that's the design. That's why we do that. And we lost those particular bacteria in our ecosystems. And that's why we need to replenish them with, uh, with giving artificial probiotics. I would argue the other way around that you don't want to utilize all of the oligosaccharides because they do have other functions as well. So throwing a probiotic in there that eats up all the oligosaccharides kind of defeats the purpose to a certain extent. But then there's other probiotics that have potential other benefits. So I'm a little bit on the fence there. I think the data is not strong enough either way for one. And the other is there's so many different probiotics out there. And even if you look at the same strain, but made in different ways, they have different outcomes. For me, the most fascinating is that there is an entire page in a biochemistry textbook that hasn't been written yet, and we can contribute to writing that. And at the same time, it's something so, so relevant. Like every human is exposed to that in the first few months of their lives, right? Whether they are breastfed or they're not breastfed and hadn't received these oligosaccharides, right? Everyone kind of gets exposed to this. And it's one of these things where, why don't we know how this works? And human, it's not just the oligosaccharides, it's, it's human milk in general. We know so little around human milk and breastfeeding. I think San Diego is a, is a unique place when it comes to that. We certainly have, uh, from an academic side and from a clinical side, a lot of interest and, and focus on human milk and breastfeeding. But also you see in the community, there's so many people that are champions of breastfeeding and human milk and, and uh, lactation consultants. And it's really a hotspot, a hotbed for, for human milk and lactation. So that's why the very first Human Milk Institute in the world really happens to be in San Diego. I first heard Lars Moda speak about oligosaccharides and human milk at least 10 years ago probably maybe more like 15. And in the last five years or so, we've seen formula manufacturers make such a big deal to us doctors about putting HMOs in their formula. They always have it in their sales pitches to us. And it's incredible to me that these molecules, they didn't even have a page in biochemistry books when Dr. Boda first learned about them. And they're not even digested but they significantly contribute to the health of every single human. Because even if you weren't breastfed, you were still exposed when your mother was pregnant with you. There's still a lot to learn and you can help by supporting milk banks. I wanna give a special mention to the Mother's Milk Bank of Montana. It was co-founded by my husband's cousin about 10 years ago, which makes her another pioneer in the realm of donor milk. 
Thank you to Dr. Aboda for his passion and for sharing the wonder of this topic. So many discoveries have come from this research, including an understanding of whether viruses cross into breast milk. He and I talked about how the COVID pandemic was a challenge and ultimately proved to be an opportunity for researchers. Early on in the pandemic, parents and doctors, we needed to know if SARS-CoV-2 crossed into breast milk. And Dr. Boda's lab was in a unique position to answer that question. He shares that experience and how it changed the processes of scientific research in a special bonus episode of this show. Be sure to click the follow button so you don't miss that episode. For more from the pediatrician next door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.